Looking to stand out from the pack at your first job? When you earn a master's in management from Georgetown, you'll gain the skills employers value most, elevating your career prospects for years to come. Get started at choosegeorgetown.com slash MIM. It's the Smart Driving Cars podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. And we are more than happy to be joined by Larry Burns, the co-author of a new HarperCollins book, Autonomy, The Quest to Build the Driverless Car and How It Will Reshape Our World. Welcome, Larry. So happy and honored to have you with us. Yeah, thank you for having me as well, Fred. Larry, great to have you. And we should say congratulations on the publication of the book. For our listeners, just a bit of background. Larry served as Corporate Vice President of Research, Development, and Planning at General Motors, overseeing GM's advanced technology and innovation programs, as well as corporate strategy. You were also a professor of engineering practice at the University of Michigan and led the Program for Sustainable Mobility at Columbia University. You've also served as an advisor to the Google Self-Driving Car Project, now as Waymo, since 2011, and are a member of the U.S. National Academy of Engineering. Now, about this wonderful new book. Tell us, uh, first of all, Larry, a, a bit about the genesis of it. Well, I um, have been involved with automobile technology for a major part of my career and then um, had the opportunity to sponsor Carnegie Mellon University and the DARPA Urban Challenge. And around the 2009 timeframe, I became convinced that a new DNA for the automobile and for transportation was emerging, one based on driverless cars and electric vehicles and the transportation service business model. Um, So when I left General Motors in 2009, I committed this encore career that I have right now to trying to accelerate the benefits that um, I could see out there uh, to replace our 100-year-old automobile transportation system. Um, And as I look back on that a couple of years ago, I realized there was a lot of people who had varying understandings of how driverless cars came to be and how they're combining with electric vehicles and transportation services to really change our lives. Um, You know, there's going to be a lot of pushback from those players who have a strong vested interest in the century-old approach that we've taken. And I felt we needed to get a real common understanding out there so we can get the collective will behind getting to this future quicker. So decided to write a book along with my um, collaborator, Christopher Shulgin, aimed at mainstream readers to really try to create a narrative with interesting characters about the story of driverless cars and um, how it's combining with these other opportunities to really bring about a a big change. So the real goal here is to to get a book out there that captures the history, really make sure those early players are are fully recognized, and then projects that forward to how it's going to change people's lives. And do do you think there's a a misconception out there about uh, just how much this is going to impact all of our lives? I would say there's a a fair amount of variation in people's understanding when they hear the word driverless cars, self-driving cars. We all have to recognize this technology is in its early stages. Yes, there's been an awful lot of coverage and um, one would argue a lot of hype about what's possible. 
Um, I actually think remarkable progress has been made since the, the DARPA Urban Challenge in 2007, but there's still uh, much more to learn and a lot more to prove uh, before we have a, a fully scalable um, opportunity here. So um, the, the purpose of the book Autonomy is, I think, to clear up a lot of those misconceptions. One of the big differentiators is driving systems where the driver still has to pay attention and will be asked to take over under different circumstances versus driving systems where there's no role for the, a person in the car at all. Uh, where you can literally design and engineer the car without steering wheels and brake pedals. And I think that is a distinction that a lot of people get confused over. The other thing I think a lot of folks are missing is once you get the driver out of the car completely, the vehicle design, when it's combined with electric drive, becomes much, much simpler. Uh, far fewer parts and the differentiators can be controlled with software. And that's really what gets me excited because then you can tailor design the vehicles for the kinds, most of the kinds of trips we make. Americans in their cars, 80% of the trips are one and two person trips. So when you get that stage of tailor designing it, making it electric, making it driverless, it becomes so much simpler, much more affordable, and really gets rid of a lot of the serious negative side effects of what we've seen in the past. So I think the misconceptions are what, what do we mean when we say driverless cars? And secondly, in terms of what, how's it going to impact my life, I don't think a lot of people have pulled that string all the way through to the exact design of the vehicles and the mobility systems that will be behind those vehicles. And that's going to have profound impacts on people's lives. Alan, I know you want to jump in here. Well, yes, Fred, this is what we've been talking about for some time. There's a lot of misconception out there between what we call uh, self-driving and what we call driverless. Uh, the driverless is the important piece, the ability of the vehicle to basically um, go by itself. And it's really important with respect to the uh, uh, opportunities to provide mobility as a service because after it drops me off, it, it has to um, go up and pick you up, and uh, and there's nobody in the car. So it has to be able to do it by itself. And as uh, Larry pointed out, that, uh, my goodness, there's the opportunity to do this. Uh, it's simpler, it's deeper, it's better. Uh, what a wonderful world. Building on what Alan just said, uh because it's driverless, it enables you to provide a transportation service because you can reposition the vehicle empty without the cost of the driver. When you're in the transportation service business, you focus on the cost per mile versus the price of the new car at the dealership. So the auto industry has been in the vehicle as a product business. And when you shift to the transportation as a service business, you want to optimize your cost per mile. When you do that, you realize the savings on energy costs when you shift to electricity versus gasoline, which can be 5 to 10 cents per mile, really is significant because a service operation will want to get about 300,000 miles life out of the vehicle. So a difference of just 5 cents a mile is $15,000 over the life of the vehicle, which more than pays for the electric drive. Plus, when you tailor design the vehicle for the typical trips we make, you can make them much lighter and that further saves energy. And it's this uh, synergy that you're getting between autonomous, the transportation service business model, the electric vehicle, 
and getting the crash out of the system. It's all of that together that autonomy gets at to try to convey these collective benefits. And that, that's why the driverless piece of this is, is really the final piece of the puzzle to shift this century-old way of, of riding around in automobiles. Fred, if you use the elevator analogy that we like to use so much, and you bring that on a horizontal level, and if you can get people to share rides when, when the demand is high, then the multiples are, are there on, on all that, that was just said. It is a really good mobility as a service for moderate, dense environments and uh, the quality of life that I guess uh, many of us have uh, decided that we like. Larry, talk a little bit about the whole idea of perhaps the end of car ownership the, the way we know it today. Because if there's any one thing that's really going to be a societal shift, I suppose it would be that. It's remarkable, Fred, that the auto industry, again, for over a century, has assumed that people are willing to shop for their product, insure it, and shop for financing, willing to spend their time tethered to the steering wheel, driving at 60 to 90 minutes a day, that they're willing to drive around looking for parking and then having to walk from where they park to their ultimate destination that they're willing to stop and buy gasoline and grab that dirty gasoline pump and get gas on their shoes and things, that they're willing to spend time maintaining their car. And I, I find that in retrospect, having been in the car industry as long as I was, it's, it's a remarkable set of assumptions about our customers in the auto industry that they're willing to put up with these negative experiences to have the freedom of, of going where they want to, when they want to in their own car. And then they leave their cars parked 90 to 95% of the time, which means three parking spots per car in the nation. And when they are driving around, they're at risk of, of, of being harmed because in the U.S. we have 40,000 fatalities a year worldwide. That's 1.3 million, which is epidemic in scale. And so suddenly when you see this convergence of driverless cars with electric vehicles and the transportation service business model, you can deliver dramatically better experiences. I mean, pick me up at my door, drop me off at my door, let me use my time as I please. I think the future designs of these vehicles will be the ultimate riding machines where the goal of the designer will be make sure the person feels better getting out of the vehicle than they did when they got into the vehicle, which is a really exciting thing to think about from a design standpoint. So now you can see a future where people will have better mobility experience. They don't need to own the car. That doesn't mean they won't have a dedicated used vehicle. You can still have one where you say, that's my vehicle for the next year. But in this case, you have dispatch control over that vehicle. I don't think you're going to own it because you want to have a service standing behind you that does the routing of the vehicle. So it picks you up and drops you off. Uh, does the smart parking of the vehicle and the smart refueling of the vehicle, and then you would have dispatch control. So I, I think the need to own the car goes away, and then you're going to open this up to so many more people who either can't drive because they're too young or too old or they're disabled or they don't want to. And um, this is going to be a very big change for the auto industry. It's a completely different business model. There needs to be a lot of... Uh... Mind shifting, I guess, is the way we can put it. A whole change in the well, yeah, way people think. My, my, yeah. 
Yeah, my, my mind shifting, but certainly I think we've seen these changes in the past when you think about, you know, I'm, I'm dating myself a bit, but my first telephone conversation was on a black phone hanging on the wall, which was tied to a cord. And um, if I even think way back, if it was a long distance call, I had to place it through an operator. So there's been a huge mind shifting. And you had to rotate a dial. Yeah, with cell phones. So I think when you get to that magic moment where the value for the new solutions, which, again, are the, the ones we're talking about in the book, Autonomy, when that value proposition is proven and people realize, hey, this is really nice and it's a really good deal. And at that price point, companies can make money supplying it. You get to this magic tipping point and the thing takes off. So this is not about being able to do a linear econometric forecast. I get asked all the time, you know, what's going to be the market share of driverless cars in the year 2030 or the year 2040? I don't have a clue. What I focus on is that magic moment of when will the conditions converge where the market tips, where this is really proven out, albeit at a small scale. But once it's proven, the, the, the capital and the smart money is going to go into this new system. And I think we're in a three to five year window where we're going to reach that tipping point. And then I think the convincing happens because more and more people get to experience it. Let's face it, not very many people have had a chance to ride in a fully driverless car yet. I'm sitting here in Washington in a hotel room. I, I really don't want to own the elevator that brings me up and down from the eighth floor. And I got here from Union Station, and I hopped in a lift, and it brought me here, and the lift is going to take me back. And I don't really wish I rented a car and had to deal with the parking and all the other stuff. I mean, in a, in a sense, the, the riding that's out here now is giving us an inkling of what that's all going to be like. And, um, and if we can get it so that, in fact, it works really well uh, driverlessly, then that can scale from the one less than 1% of the trips that it serves now to 10%, 50%, 60%. And that's the opportunity of all this. Larry, we like to dive into some of what's included in Alan's Smart Driving Car newsletter and welcome your comments as we go along here a little bit. First, a piece in Forbes sure. this week. Uh, titled Self-Driving Cars Will Keep Getting Better Forever. It talks about all of those miles Waymo has driven and all of the data being collected by Tesla. Think about that. And raises the question, have those two companies already won the market? Alan? Uh, I guess that's a good question. Uh, uh, they seem to be out there way in front. Uh, is anybody going to catch them? Um, Waymo, it's amazing what they've been able to accomplish, and they've done it very well, very meticulously, and, of course, very carefully. And so um, hats off to them. Uh, Tesla also went out there in a little bit different way and accumulated a lot. Now, you know, Mercedes might be coming out and trying to give them a little competition. The stock price is going down. Well, I think I think it's it's a good question. I I view this as a marathon, and um, maybe we're in mile twelve or thirteen of the marathon. And yes, a couple of the runners are, are out in front, uh, running well and looking uh, pretty robust. But at the same time, there's a, a group of very capable athletes chasing them. So I do think it's uh, premature to 
reach a conclusion that Waymore or Tesla um, have, have run away with the prize and, and can't be caught. We've all seen some miraculous accomplishments with, with technology through generational learning cycles. And as long as the, the com- comp- competitors are viewing this as a systems challenge, what I mean by that, to get a car to be p- truly driverless, it's a combination of, of, of different types of sensors, onboard processors, um, artificial intelligence, machine learning uh, technology, uh, sophisticated software, really rich digital maps. And all of those are changing and improving simultaneously. And to make a vehicle driverless, you have to get way out on that 99.9999 percentage tail of learning. So I think the observations are correct. Uh, Waymo and Tesla have been able to do substantial learning that maybe other companies have not yet had a chance to do. And that's what engineers do very well is they learn in the real world. And whoever can continue to drive those learning cycles, um, they're, they're going to do very well. I like the, the notion that it's just going to keep getting better and better and better. The fact that we have this concept of level four driverless vehicles where you can prove you're capable within a, a predefined envelope and you just keep growing that uh, envelope, that, that region w- within which you can operate, that's a great way to begin to deploy and, and expand the growth of this technology. So I think it's a little early to, to, to pick the winner, certainly um, because I'm an advisor to Waymo and I have been for eight years. I'm very proud of what that team has accomplished. I think they're taking a very, very safety conscious approach to developing the technology, but I, I still think we're, we're halfway through a marathon right now. And it's, it's, it's gonna be interesting to see how the other half plays out. Well, Larry, you put it as halfway. I, I think we're, the gun just went off and we're just starting to run up the, the hill on the um, Verrazano Narrows Bridge and haven't even approached the one mile mark yet. Um, uh, this is still the very, very beginning. Um, Waymo's the only company that I know of, maybe you know somebody else, that's even had a vehicle out there on public streets without anybody in it or without a driver in it. We are still way at the beginning. Uh, there's, a, there's an enormous amount to do. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a good observation that that you made about Waymo uh, being the only uh, company, they're the only company I know of that has a fleet out operating on public roads and, and, and moving people around the way they're doing out in Chandler, Arizona. And the real advantage of that is the learning cycles. Absolutely. So not only are they learning more and more about the, the capability of their technology, which is extremely important, but they're learning about what customers like a lot and what they like less. They're learning about how hard it is to actually operate transportation services. Uh, Alan, I know you've been in this business a long, long time and you understand the everyday world of transportation is very dynamic. It's very uncertain. Things come up every day. And those the operational excellence in transportation services is a very, very challenging thing uh, to deliver. So the fact that they have a fleet serving real people in a real environment is a very formidable advantage because of the learning that they can get that others can't get until they're at that point in time. So I think, I think that's a real strength. It's a real advantage. But again, I think there's a lot of work that remains and a lot to be learned 
And, um, and uh, I'm excited. I think all that's going to fall into place. I think all of this is inevitable. Um, and, uh, but again, I, I still can't quite get to a point of, of concluding in my mind that, that we know the winner already. I agree. And, and on that one, one more little note, in terms of what they're learning, I think uh, the corner cases is what we talk about a lot. Uh, corner cases might in, even involve crashes. Uh, but what's probably more important, what they're learning, are the near misses. And, and uh, what can be learned about that so that in the future they're not near misses? Uh, and, and that's fundamentally important in all this. And they're just accumulating that. Yeah, I think that's a powerful observation. I'm glad you brought up near misses. Uh, when you really focus on a safety culture, there's sort of like this this pyramid of, of things that take place. Um, as, as an executive General Motors, we are very focused on the safety of our workers and our plants. And we benchmark some of the very best companies in the world, DuPont, for example. And what you under, learn is if there's a fatality, you know, uh, that's a terrible thing. It's an awful event. That's not the moment to really get mad and upset. That's the moment to have empathy. What you really want to learn from are these near misses, and then what you want to do is 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 take those near misses as examples and drive that in, in, into the culture which promotes really safe behaviors, and that's what's happening as you discover the near misses with a, a autonomous driver, a driverless vehicle. Once you understand that, one time you can bake that into every car. So think about you as a, an individual driver, and you have a near miss, and you say, "Boy, I'm not going to get in that situation anymore." You don't have any mechanism today to share your near miss with the other 212 million drivers in the United States. But with a driverless vehicle system, every time you understand a near miss and you find a solution to avoid that, you can put that in all of the vehicles that you have, which is a remarkable way to, to learn and improve the system. And what about the importance, Larry, of sharing that data among these all the different companies that are working on this? Well, I, I think um, it, 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 being open with best practices for how to learn is what needs to be shared. Um, I, I do believe there's a, a need for competition here. I think that's what's motivating a lot of the progress that's taken place. Uh, so I think we need to be sharing the best practices for how do you develop these vehicles on public roads and do this in a appropriately risk-managed way but do it in a way that allows us to realize the full safety potential of driverless cars as soon as possible. And why do I say that? When you have 1.3 million people a year dying on the world's roadways and the traffic safety experts think you can eliminate over 90% of the crashes that kill these people, getting to that end goal one day sooner will save 3,000 lives. That's just simple arithmetic, 90% of 1.3 million divided by 365. So there's a reason we want to move fast with this. But if you move too fast and you have more fatalities like Joshua Brown and Elaine Herzberg, which are tragic, um, that's going to slow it down because of the societal reaction to it. But I think the sharing of these best practices for how to learn on, on public roads is absolutely essential. I've sort of argued we should be competing on competition, on safety. We should be competing and cooperating on safety because that makes everyone better. 
Alan, competing on safety has been underlying the auto industry for years, and uh, car companies try to differentiate themselves uh, on safety. So I think the, the notion of competing on safety is not a new idea on driverless cars. It's, it's been at the root of, of the auto industry for, for a long, long time. And insurance industry has created metrics and star ratings and cars promote, or car companies promote their brands based on their, their, their safety ratings. Um, but, but what's really exciting here is, is the opportunity to really deal with this epidemic of roadway fatalities in a new way with with the driverless vehicle technology, and um, uh, that that that's that, that's very profound. Larry, what what do you see as the biggest obstacle today, or obstacles to, to having driverless cars being out there in a meaningful way? I I think it's uh, people's fear of the unknown, and um, and that's not a, a criticism of anyone. I think that's just human nature. Um, there's been a lot written about this technology and the whole concept of, of having an autonomous vehicle or a driverless vehicle moving you around on roads is, is a pretty scary thought to a lot of people. And so it's just a matter of, of continuing to prove the technology, um, uh, do that, I think, with big thinking in terms of the benefits of it, but starting small the way a lot of the players have and learning fast and then uh, really communicating that progress clearly so that you can begin to get this uh, common understanding uh, behind it. So I think it's just this, the, the fear of the unknown right now. And it's, it's going to take a, a bit of time to uh, uh, get, get it out there in front of enough people. But I would say that happened with, with something like take Uber and Lyft. Um, Next to don't play with matches, my parents taught me to never get in a car with a stranger. Um, and lo and behold, along comes a business model where everybody's moving around and communities now getting in a car with a stranger and people have overcome that fear. So I, I think it's just a matter of, of developing the technology, getting it out there on um, a small scale, proving out the, the, the true benefits and then as more and more people get to experience it and understand it, I think we're going to eliminate a lot of that fear. Again, that's why we wrote the book, Autonomy. That's why we wanted people to understand the quest for the driverless car and very importantly, how it's going to reshape their lives. Beyond that, I think it's going to be the, the, the natural pushback of all of the players who have a strong vested interest in the historic uh, automobile transportation model. Um, there's 4 million people who make their livelihood as, as a driver in the United States. Certainly, I understand if my profession was at, at risk because of what's going on here, that would be a major concern to me. Um, you've got oil companies who um, I believe are going to be facing a dramatic reduction in the demand for oil for transportation as this plays out because of the efficient designs of the vehicles as well as making them electrically driven. Um, when General Motors went bankrupt, the year we went bankrupt, we lost over $30 billion. That same year, ExxonMobil made $45 billion. Uh, those kinds of companies aren't going to roll over and play dead as this, as this moves forward. So there's an awful lot of, of, of people who are going to be impacted in ways that they're not happy about. So I would say that second to the fear of the unknown, I think it's going to be uh, the pushback of those players with vested interest. And again, that's why we wrote this book is to try to get this common understanding 
and try to drive a collective will behind a lot more people to get to this future sooner because the benefits are so formidable. Well, this is a really a terrific thing. Again, the name of the book is Autonomy, The Quest to Build the Driverless Car and How It Will Reshape Our World. Larry Burns, thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll be back. Thank you, Fred. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Alan. That's it for this edition. Go get the book. It's from HarperCollins, number one in the automotive category on Amazon. You can find us at smartdrivingcar.com and on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. My tech reports are at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thanks for listening.